uh, good morning. My name is Josh, if I haven't met you before. Uh, I serve here as the kids uh, ministry director. I serve here overseeing small groups and uh, get to preach occasionally. So uh, I'm really excited to be able to speak with, to you all this morning and have the privilege to do that. Uh, I want to start by just reminiscing a little bit. Ten years ago at this time, I was a senior at Mount Spokane High School, and I was on top of the world at Mount Spokane High School. See, I don't know what your high school experience was like, but I loved every second of my high school experience. I was the kid who woke up excited every morning to get up and go to school. I loved learning. I loved most of my teachers. I loved my friends. I loved meeting new people. I loved my youth group community. I felt empowered. I felt supported, and I felt belonging. I went to all the school dances. I went to all the high school football games. I was a member of the student class body. Like, I was all in fully into high school. Kid that many of you probably would have been annoyed by because of how much I liked high school. I, uh, see, high school were just, was the glory days for me. And that is evidenced by this picture of me. This is a poster that I put up as I ran for ASB president all around the school. And it says, because a man in footy pajamas is a man you can trust. <laughs> and to no one's surprise, I did not win that election. But we had fun the whole time while doing it. See, 10 years ago, I was loving every bit of my senior year, but I was having to face the reality that only in a few months that my time in high school was going to come to an end and I was going to have to transition which was college. Now, don't get me wrong, I was definitely excited about the idea of college, the idea of living on my own, having more freedom and responsibility, meeting new people. That all seemed great, but, but here's the thing about change. It sounds really great until the reality of it is about to set in. I remember I took so long to decide where I wanted to go to college. I had applied to like eight different schools. Most of them were way too much money, and I knew that going into it. And I had narrowed down my decision to Eastern Washington University or Western Washington University. See, Eastern felt safe. It was close to Spokane. I had plenty of classmates who I knew were going to be there. But Western felt scarier, and it was, it was farther away. I didn't know any of my classmates who were going there, and I remember feeling the sense that I needed to get outside of my, my comfort zone and out of my bubble a little bit. And I still remember the, the registration deadline to choose which school I wanted to attend was April 15th. And I waited all the way until April 15th to make that decision. And then I went with my gut, and I chose Western the uncomfortable choice that would get me out of my bubble. And then after that moment, I chose to ignore the fact that everything was going to change because then I wouldn't have to leave, Belling leave for Bellingham until September, and that seemed like forever away, so let's not think about it at all. So I did everything I could to stay in the moment, slow down, and enjoy every bit of my time in Spokane. But despite my efforts... This, this summer after my senior year was filled with nervousness, uncertainty about the future, and restlessness, and lots of self-doubt, knowing that everything was about to change. September soon came, the reality of change hit me, and it was time to pack my bags and get in the U-Haul and go to school. 
And, I, I, and, and when it came time, I still remember very clearly when it came time for my family to like drop me off at the dorm and we're saying our goodbyes and then they left and it was just me. And I was like, wow, like everything is different now. And everything from that moment on was like, everything's gonna change. And, and 10 to 15% of me was kind of excited for like new possibilities and everything, but I was mostly filled with fear and anxiety and uncertainty about all the unknown that was in front of me. See, the season of life where I was finishing high school, choosing which college to attend, moving to a new city, leaving my family had plenty of change, but honestly, it felt like a strange season of waiting. See, the whole time, I felt like I was waiting for what was next. I was wondering where I was heading and what that would be like. And I questioned myself and I questioned God constantly. And I wondered, what should I be doing? Is this the right move? And I was waiting to figure out if where, where my choices were going to lead me. See, the end of my senior year and the summer before moving was, was a time where I was just trying to prolong my current season and wait for the inevitable to come. And even when I arrived at Western, I was waiting to see what this new season would be like. See, this was the first major season of my life where I had to prepare for a new season and wait in the unknown of what was to come. And in these seasons, honestly, I usually have no idea what to do. Sometimes I ignore the impending transition that I'm facing. Other times I get anxious and restless because I'm waiting for change to come and I don't know when it will happen or what it will be like. And still other times I desire change to happen, but then I feel like I'm waiting endlessly making me question everything I'm doing. And I don't think I'm alone, alone in this. I think that we have all experienced seasons of waiting. We have all faced or desired impending transitions. And I think that we've all had fear and doubt about the unknown that is to come. We've all experienced this anxiety. Change is going to happen, but we don't really want it to. See, to be honest, we're all probably one way or another experiencing a season of waiting right now. Some of us may be waiting for a new job opportunity to come along where you're discontent right now and you're just experiencing uncertainty about what a different job could look like for you and where, that could, where your future is going to take you in that. See, most of us starting tomorrow are going to begin waiting for the weekend. Some of us are waiting for our own health to improve or the health of a loved one to improve. Some of us are waiting for a broken relationship to be healed. All of us are in a season of waiting for Thanksgiving and Christmas to come. And for, and, and for many of this, for many of us, this could be a time of excitement and anticipation where we're just trying to get through the days, get to the holidays, spend time with family, enjoy that season. But for many of us, that might come with a lot of stress and anxiety. And we're just waiting, prolonging our current days, saying, nah, I'm gonna ignore that. I don't want that to come anytime soon. And we're experiencing fear and worry about what's to come. We're all experiencing waiting and transition. The question is, what do we do in these times of uncertainty and worry and anxiety? Do we sit in anxiety because that's all we can do? Do we get through our days living for the next big moment? 
Will we always experience this constant restlessness? Do we exist in a constant fear of, of the future? See, what do we do in these seasons of waiting, and how might we wait well with God? And that's what we're going to be looking at this morning. And we're continuing in our series, Living in the Light, uh, where we've been going through the Gospel of John, just kind of examining what the life of Jesus looked like. And by looking at how he lived, how can we live in the light of who he is? See, this week we're moving into John chapters 13 through 14. And we're going to be discussing a story that's in the midst of these chapters. And in doing so, we're going to be read, reading about a time where Jesus was with his 12 disciples, and they're preparing for impending change and a new season on the horizon. They find themselves waiting for this change, but the disciples are also being invited into a new season of waiting. As we look into the story, we're going to discover how we're invited to wait well with Jesus so that we might experience joy and purpose and wholeness in our season of uncertainty, fear, and restlessness. But before jumping in, I want to give you some context into the scene that we'll be reading from. See, the beginning of, of chapter 13 starts with Jesus and his 12 disciples sitting down uh, for a meal called Passover meal. And Passover was a time where the Jewish people would gather and, and they celebrate uh, the freedom that God gave them when they were enslaved to the Egyptians. The time where the... Where Here, let me switch mics and get this little hand one over here. And I'm going to turn this off. Okay, that's better. So anyways, Passover. There was uh, this meal where the Jewish people would celebrate Passover. And there was a time where uh, God told the, the Jewish people to put the blood of a lamb on their door and the spirit of death would pass over them. And so they're celebrating the time where they were passed over and that they were freed from slavery to the Egyptians. So the chapter starts with Jesus and the disciples sitting down for this meal. And, and the text makes it clear that Jesus knows he is about to be killed as he goes into this meal. So really, this scene that we're jumping into is Jesus' last meal with his disciples and, and some of the last words he's ever going to say to them. This scene, this final Passover meal together, is so important that four chapters in the book of John are dedicated alone to this scene. Chapters 13 through 17 are all about this meal that Jesus is ha having with his disciples. And, and this is because he's about to get arrested and he's giving his last instructions <laughs> to the disciples. But to start the meal, Jesus does something that is uh, radically crazy, radically different for what the disciples would have experienced. He, to start the meal, he does something shocking, and he actually washes the feet of his disciples, something rabbis would never do in their culture. See, washing feet was something that only the lowliest servants or slaves did at that time, and yet Jesus did so, and then he instructed his followers to go and do the same. See, after this, the disciples then are back sitting around the table and Jesus says that one of them is then going to betray him. And the disciples are, are shocked and confused. 
And then Jesus indicates that, that he indicates to John and Peter that Judas Iscariot is the one who's going to do so. And Jesus, having all the power in the world to stop Judas, simply tells him that he's to do whatever he's about to do quickly. And right after Judas leaves, it's late into the night. Some shocking things have already happened at this meal. And now Jesus is alone with his 11 disciples, ready to tell them what are some of his last words. And so this is where we're picking up. If you have your Bible, your Bible app, we're reading from chapter 13, verse 31. The text is going to be on the screen as well, where it says, When he, Judas, was gone, Jesus said, Now the Son of Man is glorified, and God is glorified in him. If God is glorified in him, God will glorify the Son in himself and will glorify him at once. My children, I will be with you only a little longer. You will look for me, and just as I told the Jews, so I tell you now, where I am going, you cannot come. Now that Judas is gone, Jesus gets to the crux of what he wants to discuss with his disciples. And he says that the Father is about to glorify him soon, but follows that up with saying that he's only going to be with them a little longer, and then they can't go where he's going. Jesus immediately indicates that change is coming, and something is going to happen soon. And then he won't be with them very much longer. He's preparing them for what is next, and this would have been totally disorienting for the disciples. They've been following Jesus for years. They believe that he's the Messiah, the one who has been sent to restore Israel, to rule as king, to overthrow the Roman government. But now he's leaving, and they can't follow him. And I would imagine they're thinking, but what about the plan, Jesus? Like, what about what we wanted you to do? What about, like, the thing that you were supposed to do? What about what we thought you were going to do? Jesus telling them this would have made them feel immediately uncertain, fearful, and nervous about the future. And this was the moment where they got dropped, after, dropped off at their college dorm room and they realized everything's going to be different now. wondering, what do we do now? What are they to do in this new period of waiting for the unknown to come? They would have been anxious, and the temptation to dwell in this fear would have been present. But I think that this is actually the very reason Jesus is, is telling them all of this, of, that he's telling them of what's to come, because he's preparing them for the unknown that they're about to walk into. He's preparing them for the season of waiting, and he wants to help them know what to do as they go forward as his disciples, which leads us into one of the most important verses in all of Scripture, where Jesus says this, A new command I give you, love one another as I have loved you. So you must love one another. By this, everyone will know that you are my disciples, if you love one another. So because Jesus is leaving soon, because he knows the disciples would be disoriented by this news, he gives them a new command. He gives them instructions on what to do going forward, and in doing so, summarizes all of his teachings up to this point. Like, remember, he is preparing them for this upcoming season. They're going into the season of waiting, waiting for everything to change, but also a season of waiting and learning to do what to do after Jesus has left them. So he says, this is what you must do in the meantime. In the waiting, you must love one another as I have loved you. 
In the waiting, you must love one another as I have loved you. Now, loving one another isn't new information to these disciples. They would have heard that command before. What's new about this new command is that Jesus says, love one another as I have loved you. And as you do this, everyone will know you are my disciples. See, the command has always been love one another as yourself. But Jesus says, no, the new standard is now to love one another as I have loved you. The disciples are now to take their cue alone from Jesus in terms of how to treat other people. And how does Jesus say to love? Well, he just served his disciples like a slave would, washing their feet. In fact, he just served Judas, the one that he said is going to betray him, the one who's literally on his way right now to go sell Jesus out to be murdered. And Jesus, and, and, and Jesus just washed their feet. And then he says to the disciples, love one another as I have loved you. He's about to go and sacrificially give his life away out of love for all of humanity. And then he says, love others as I have loved you. Love to the point you would give your life away for other people. If you do this, everyone will know that you are followers of Jesus. And I, I just skip over that a lot. Like, love like, I've heard that many times. Love others as I have loved you. Love like Jesus loves. But when you really think about how Jesus loved, that is a radical invitation. That is beyond anything that I think that we've actually seen most of our lives of what love really looks like. And see, I think that we need to understand the implications of this. Because according to Jesus, radical, self-emptying, sacrificial, generous love is to be the hallmark of his disciples. Love for others is to be the mark of authenticity that we are followers of Jesus. So how will everyone know that we're a disciple of Jesus? He made it really clear. It's through the way we treat others, not the way we believe about him. See, everyone will not know we are his disciples simply because we pray or we read the Bible or we go to church or we participate in Christian activity. They will not know that we are his disciples if we simply follow every rule, we refuse to sin, or if we believe the perfectly correct doctrine. All those things matter. But everyone will know who the disciples of Jesus are if we love one another as he has loved us. That's according to Jesus. And this is convicting to me because I, and I would guess you too, because honestly— my primary focus in my day-to-day -day life is far more about me than it is about actively seeking to love others like Jesus loved me. And this isn't just a verse telling us to feel loving towards other people. It's to actively love others with our actions. To serve when we don't feel like it. To sacrifice when it's inconvenient to intentionally think about how we can care for those around us even when we're tired. How do I know this? Because Jesus didn't feel like going to the cross. His love was a sacrificial, self-emptying choice. And if that's how he loves, then that's how we're to love one another. Too often, my actions follow my feelings. If I feel tired, I relax. If I feel angry, I stew in it. If I feel love for someone, I show it. 
But I think the model that we are to follow is one where we act ourselves into our feelings. See, sacrificing, serving, practicing generosity, loving when we don't feel like it over time can actually change our, des our desires. It can change who we are as we act in obedience to Jesus. And I don't know about you, but I think if there's anything that the church needs to be reminded of, the big C church, it's this. Our job, our main priority is to love others as Jesus has loved us. Full stop. It isn't to judge. It isn't to manage people's behaviors. It isn't to elect Christian laws. It isn't to fight against our enemies. Jesus washed the feet of his enemy. He laid his life down for his enemy. Love as he has loved us. That's the invitation. This is the work Jesus has given the disciples as they enter into a season of unknown and waiting and anxiousness and worry and restlessness. And although Jesus gives them clear instructions, it doesn't seem to calm them down, as we see in the next few verses. It says this, Simon Peter asked him, Lord, where are you going? Jesus replied, where I am going, you cannot follow now, but you will follow later. Peter asked, Lord, why can't I follow you now? I will lay down my life for you. Then Jesus answered, will you really lay down your life for me? Very truly, I tell you, before the rooster crows, you will disown me three times. Peter's like, yeah, yeah, Jesus, love one another. We get it. But back to that first thing you said. You're going somewhere, and I can't follow you there? Not possible. I would never allow that to happen. Peter's fear and anxiety in the uncertainty and unknown of what's occurring is coming to the surface. And, and, and man, do I relate to Peter. Because Peter is so focused on the uncertainty of the future because everything that he thought was going to happen is now getting thrown into the air. And so he just blows by what Jesus instructed. He's not focused on Jesus here. He's focused on what he desires, which is to go where Jesus is going. It's just like when Peter and Jesus walked on water. Peter was fine when his eyes were on Jesus and his guidance, but the moment he started focusing on the waves, he began to sink. And Peter here is focusing on the waves. He is sinking into worry, fear, and restlessness. More than anything, Peter is focused on what he wants to happen, realizing that what's coming is diverting from his plan. See, this is the moment where it was sitting in, just, just like me 10 years ago, where I had to leave Spokane and all that was safe. This is what Peter's experiencing. Jesus does not, Jesus does try to reassure, reassure him here, though. He says, you, can, you, you can't follow me now, but you will be able to lead, you will be able to later. He's saying, all will be okay, Peter. Everything's going to work out. And again, Peter's so focused on what he wants, saying he'll lay down his life to make it happen. But then Jesus says, no, you won't. You're going to disown me three times tonight. And unfortunately, that is exactly what happens. What's so difficult for Peter and the disciples here is that they have to let go of what they thought Jesus was going to do. And only in doing this would they be able to experience the fullness of what he's actually doing. They would only be able to experience the fullness of what Jesus is actually doing if they let go of their expectations and what they thought Jesus should do. To experience what Jesus is really doing, Peter needs to let go of what he thinks Jesus 
should do. See, in our waiting, I think that we often have expectations of of what we think Jesus should do. He should give me that job. He should restore and improve my marriage. He should make me feel safe. He should let me stay where I am. He should give me a new opportunity, almost always leading to discontentment and bitterness towards God. Maybe in order to see what Jesus is really doing, we need to let go of what we think he should do. And this doesn't mean that once we do so, all will be easy. But it does mean that in our waiting, we can trust in the greater work Jesus is actually doing, having hope and faith, even in the midst of unknown and uncertainty. See, at this point in the meal, the disciples are totally disoriented and worried and are freaking out. Judas, one of their closest friends, has left after Jesus said he's going to be a traitor. Jesus tells them he's leaving soon and they can't follow him. And then Jesus says, Peter, you're going to disown me three, down, three times tonight. Like, what a great meal together. Like, I, I guarantee that that's going to beat out our Thanksgiving drama. <laughs> and this leads us into the beginning of chapter 14. It says, Do not let your hearts be troubled. You believe in God, believe also in me. My Father's house has many rooms. If that were not so, would I have told you that I am going there to prepare a place for you? And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come back and take you to be with me, that you may also be where I am going. You know the way to the place where I am going. Clearly, Jesus can sense the fear and uncertainty that is present in the room. He can sense that they're worried about this new season that's coming and that, that Jesus is preparing them for. So he attempts to comfort them, saying, Don't let your hearts be troubled. Don't let your hearts be troubled. Don't sit in your worry and fear. Don't wait for this to come with trembling in your hearts. Everything will be okay. Believe in me. Have faith. I'm going to my father's house to prepare a place for you. I will come back. Everything's going to be all right. And more than that, you know the way where I'm going. It's now very clear that the disciples are being invited into a season of waiting. Jesus is going to leave, prepare a room for them, and then come back for them. They're being prepared for the time that they're going to wait for Jesus' return. And church, we're still in this period. Like, we're still in this waiting period. We are all still waiting to be taken into the place where Jesus is. So what do we do as we wait? First off, in your waiting, don't be troubled. In your waiting, don't be troubled. Jesus says, don't let your hearts be troubled. Don't indulge your mind with fear, worry, anxiety, and restlessness about all kinds of scenarios. Secondly, Jesus says, you know the place where I am going. You don't have to wait with a troubled heart because you know the place I'm going. You know what to do in your waiting. Follow the way to the place I'm going. And if you're confused, the disciples are too. And we find that in the next couple of verses. Thomas said to him, Lord, we don't know that where you're going. So how can we know the way? Jesus answered, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. If you really know me, you will know my Father as well. From now on, you do know, you do know him and have seen him. See, I love how clear Thomas's question is here. 
He's just like, Lord, we don't know where you're going, though. Like, that's the whole point. How can we know the way if we don't know where you're going? Like, Jesus, stop being cryptic. Just tell us where you're going. Give us direction. Give us the answer. And do you ever feel that way? I feel like I'm always saying, like, God, just tell me what to do. Tell me where I'm going to go. Tell me where you want me to go. Tell me where you want me to do. And I'll just do it. But the problem is, I think that we're so often on an entirely different wavelength than what Jesus is on. Because his response to Thomas is that the way to where he's going is himself. The way isn't a map, but a person. And Jesus makes a radically definitive statement saying the only way to the Father is through him. If you know Jesus, you know the Father. Are you tracking? Jesus has said he's leaving to go to his Father. His disciples can't follow him. He will come back, though, and in the meantime, they are to follow the way to the place where he's going. And the way to this place, the way to the Father, is through Jesus himself. So again, what are the disciples supposed to do in their upcoming waiting season? They're to follow the way of Jesus. Friends, in your waiting, follow the way of Jesus. This doesn't mean just believe in him or participate in Christian activity, but pattern your whole life around the way of Jesus. How did he live? What was he like? How did he treat other people? What did he care about? Like, remember, love others as he loved you. Jesus is simply saying, do what I've done. That's what you're to do. Do what I've done. Church, let me ask you, are you on the way or are you in the way? Are you on the way or are you in the way of Jesus? Does your life look like the way of Jesus? Do you spend your season of waiting actively pursuing a life that looks like him? Like actively pursuing that? Or do you feel like your life is in the way of what Jesus wants to do in and through you? What does waiting in your life actually look like? Are you like the disciples, fearful of the unknown, gripping tightly to what you desire to happen, depending on what you can will to make happen, just like Peter? I don't know about you, but for me, I am more often in the way than on the way. I fall into ignoring him, impatiently wanting him to follow where I'm going. I'm focused on myself and what's best for me, how I can get ahead, how I can get others to like me, how I can gather more to feel safe. But instead, I'm invited to let go of all of that and then pattern my life around the selfless, generous, and loving way of Jesus. If you can't tell whether you might be on the way or in the way, ask yourself, if Jesus were in my shoes, how would he live? See, if Jesus were you, how would he live? How would, how would he treat the people around you? How would he exist in the marriage? How would he love your kids? How would he be a neighbor? How would he be a coworker? How would he be a member of this church? What would that actually look like? Are you on the way or are you in the way? See, even after this, the disciples are still confused. They're just like, we don't understand anything, Jesus. 
So, and we're going to wrap up in the last uh, next few verses where Philip says this. Philip said, Lord, show us the Father and that will be enough for us. Jesus answered, don't you know me, Philip? Even after I've been among you such a long time, anyone who has seen me has seen the Father. How can you say, show us the Father? Don't you believe that I am in the Father and that the Father is in me? The words I say to you, I do not speak on my own authority. Rather, it is the Father living in me who is doing his work. Believe me when I say that I am in the Father and the Father is in, in me. Or at least believe on the evidence of the works themselves. Very truly I tell you, whoever believes in me will do the works I have been doing. And they will do even greater things than these because I am going to the Father. See, Philip's question still shows that they don't get it. They want, essentially, for Jesus to show them who God is, and that'll be enough for them. Then they'll all be okay. Then they'll be able to calm down in this upcoming season of waiting and change. And Jesus is like, dang, Philip, I've been around this long, and you're missing it. Anyone who's seen me has seen the Father. We're the same. We're one. Like, don't you get it? And again, I relate to the disciples here. Jesus, I'll be okay if you just made yourself obvious to me. If you just showed me clearly what was next so I can relax and trust in you. But even when the disciples are literally having a meal with God, they're like, yeah, but can you give us more assurances? We aren't really ready for this season that you're talking about Jesus. It's kind of scary and it's unknown. And when we're in it, we're just going to be endlessly waiting for you to come back. What should we do? And at this point, Jesus has to sound like a broken record. Because he, reiter he, re he reiterates, whoever believes in me, whoever is my disciple, whoever wants to be my follower will do the works I have been doing. Again, love others as I have loved you. Follow the way of Jesus. Do the works I've been doing. He's saying the same thing in three different ways. This is what you're to do next. That's what you're to do in your waiting. And as you do so, not only will you be okay, things that are greater than what you've already experienced will occur. Jesus says, whoever believes in me will do what I've done and then will do greater than that. Yes, the disciples are being invited into a period of waiting and change. Yes, it's uncertain. Yes, it's indefinite. Yes, it will be scary and difficult at times, but they are to trust in the Lord and do what Jesus has done. And as they do so in their season of waiting, goodness, beauty, life, and new creation will sprout into the lives of the disciples. Greater things than, the, than what they've experienced with Jesus will occur in the midst of their waiting. So church, I don't know what season you're in. I don't know what waiting looks like in your life right now. See, maybe there's a transition that's coming and you're waiting nervously with hesitation because you don't know what to expect. Maybe you've been in the same job, city, home, or circumstance for a long time and you're endlessly waiting for a change to come. Maybe you've been feeling a little bit of both where you've been wanting change to come, but now that it's actually happening, you're questioning yourself. See, I believe we're all in a season of waiting one way or another. For me, I feel like I've been waiting a while for God to show me what is next in my life. 
I've been in Bellingham for almost 10 years, and I've been wondering what, what I really want to do going forward. What is next? Where are you taking me, Lord? Wondering, where is God calling May and I? And I have definitely felt like I'm in a state of waiting. And typically, when I'm in a season of waiting, I can get down, and I can feel purposeless. And I can feel like I'm in a fog of just kind of getting through one day after another, waiting for something to happen, waiting for God to move, waiting for an invitation. And I can just question, what am I doing with my life? Where should I be going? What should I be doing? And yet at the same time, the prospect of change and transition is so scary because of the unknown. So I often just feel like I wait, waiting to see what God's going to put in front of me. And normally, waiting has felt negative to me. It's felt like a negative season. But friends, I think that what this scripture reveals is that there can be immense purpose, joy, and fulfillment in the season of waiting. That there is work God wants to do in and through us in our waiting. And if we're too preoccupied with fear or with complaining about where we aren't, we'll miss it. The instructions Jesus gave to his 11 disciples around that table that night still apply to us. What are we to do in these seasons of waiting? Love one another as he loves. Don't be troubled. Follow the way of Jesus and do the works that he did. If we focus our energy on this, we will find life. We will find that greater things than the disciples experienced will happen in our souls and in the life of others. See, lately, I have been invited to wait well with the Lord, and I, I want to invite you to do the same. This doesn't mean you don't plan for the future or look forward to change or desire something, but in the time you're waiting, I think that the Lord wants to wait well with you. See, in Hebrew, the word usually uh, used for wait is this word called kavah. It means to wait or to look for or to hope. And the other meaning for this word is to collect and to bind together. See, I think that it's fascinating that the word used to describe weight is also a word that describes this picture of something being bound together. Like a rope weaving into itself. And when I think of the word weight, it always just seems passive. Like I'm waiting for something to change. I'm waiting for my circumstances to become different. But in Hebrew, this is a very active word. Binding something together takes effort. It takes work and focus. And friends, I think that this is the kind of waiting that Jesus wants to invite us all into. What, what if the season of waiting you're in is the one that you could be bound together with yourself, with Christ, with friends, with those around you? What if waiting is an immense gift from the Lord? What if waiting is active not passive. And it can be beautiful and good work with a posture of curiosity in all seasons. You could exist in your waiting, trusting in the Lord, and simply continue to follow his way, actively being bound together as you do so. See, church, I really believe waiting can be the best season of your life if you allow it to be. And I believe if we act actively love others like Jesus, if we do the work that he did, the best is yet to come, and God will move in unimaginable ways. See, the disciples had little hope in their waiting. They were terrified. They were worried about what's next. 
but through it, through the uncertainty, Jesus brought new life and resurrection. New life and resurrection was unimaginable to the disciples at this time, and yet that's what Jesus brought. Jesus brought new life and resurrection. He could still do the same for you, and he could do the same for us. What are you being invited to wait? Where are you being invited to wait well with him? What does he want? How does he want to bind you together? How can you be on the way of Jesus instead of in the way? See, friends, during the next song, I want to invite you to take time to process this and and think about what is the Lord putting on your heart to tune into his spirit. But also, I want to invite you to do this during the week and, and to think about what is it I'm waiting on? Maybe that's something obvious to you. Maybe it's something that you need to talk to the Lord about. But then ask God, God, what do you want to, how do you want me to wait well with you? Like, what beauty do you want to bring into my life in this season? How do you want me to be bound together in this season? And friends, I think that if we did this, we could see resurrection in our, in our lives and in our, in our community, a new life, an unimaginable work as we follow the way of Jesus together in that waiting. So I want to invite you to do that over the next song. Discuss that with your community this week. Talk about that. Talk about that with one another. And then let's all wait well together this week. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, thank you for this morning. Thank you that your spirit is near. Thank you that you are present. Thank you that you are holy. Thank you that you are good. And God, thank you that in the midst of uncertainty, fear, and worry, you have clarity. And you have peace and you have direction, and you're saying it'll be all right, and it'll be okay. I'm with you. Just love me. Follow me. Pattern your life around the way of Jesus. God, that's what I really think that you're inviting us all to do. So Lord, would you graciously reveal to us where we aren't patterning our life around you? Would you kindly reveal to us how you want us to follow you more actively, Lord. Where you want to bind us together. Lord, we, we, we give you our wounding. And Lord, would you bring healing? Would you bring such binding together in the waiting, Lord? God, I don't know what you want to say to everyone this morning, but I pray you would say it. God, we give you today. May we wait well with you this week. Lord, we love you. Amen.